Here we go. Uh, Quinquagesima Sunday. Must be about 50-something left coming up. So uh, up to Jerusalem. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that's written of the Son of Man and the prophets will be accomplished. Luke 18.31. So uh, here we go. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, who sent your Son to sinful men, and laid on him the grievous burden of the cross that we might see and know the glory of holy love. Grant that our faith in him may not be shaken by adversity or daunted by threat of it, but that we may ever follow steadfastly in the way that leads to perfect fellowship with him. And so with thee, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, I didn't, uh, gosh, I didn't mean to, well, I hadn't read the prayer in advance. You know, I read it once a year, but there it all is, right there. So, uh, holy love, perfect fellowship, adversity and the threat of it, it's all there. Um, I've gotten on a detour, and uh, well, the detour will end today, uh, one way or another. Uh, I even brought my wrong Bible, which is going to be another challenge, because I don't usually read from this one. I use it for devotions, but I don't normally use it for... Uh, teaching because it's not as crisp. Nah, we'll just see what the Lord does here, Val, but thanks very much for always being at the ready. Uh, let me just see if I can tell you where we've been sort of the last month. Uh, we're, you know, we're reading, um, well, we're, we're reading James and we're reading uh, Galatians. We're trying to read them next door to each other because sometimes it's thought that they're opposites, but our suggestion is that they're really two sides of the same coin. And one of the interesting, there's a, there's a range of interesting things happening all at once. That is, um, Galatians, Lutherans always, and Luther had the great Galatians commentaries, and we always talk about that as being about uh, free gift and grace and love and nothing but Christ, Galatians 1.8. And that's true, but you know, you're gonna get to Galatians 6.1 or 6.10, where Paul goes, do some good. You know, do some good. Let's go. And then James, we started with uh, the holiness of God that drops down from above. Every good thing comes down from above. But, you know, he's a pastor, and immediately he gets cooking with his folks and says, you know, this is the way it looks. Um, and then, you know, we've been doing some other things. We've, uh, well... And then in, in the women's Bible study, you know, and we, we've been reading N.T. Wright, who, you know, is, thank God for us. I can just say, just thank God for us. Ten years ago, the, the Jesus Seminar was the thing, or 15 years ago. And now it's N.T. Wright. That it's a miracle that things could shift. I'm not asking you to love him unconditionally, but he's the Bishop of Dur Durham who defends the resurrection and believes in God and goes to the Eucharist and talks about the Christian life. What's been common in all those experiences are things like the phrase, holy love and perfect light. What's been common in, in all those experiences, to some people, that has felt like the natural normal thing, and to some people, that's felt like just a really oppressive burden. And that's a, that's a very you know, interesting reaction uh, in, in, in both ways. And here's the thing, both things are right. That's the important thing. Both things are right. And that's why I was trying to explain to you that any word of Jesus can be used two ways. If you run against it, it's terribly oppressive. And he cleans the temple. You know, he drives you out. If you'll have him, 
It is the manger. It's the most luxurious, wonderful thing you'll ever experience. So every word, everything, even Jesus himself, you know this, the Eucharist, it either is the body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins, 1 Corinthians 10, or it kills you, 1 Corinthians 11. Even Jesus himself, Matthew 26, there'll be sheep, there'll be goats. Um, and sometimes we confuse things like holy love as if it's not a, a, you know, law and gospel, as if it's not both things. So I've tried to observe this in us as a congregation and in myself, and uh, also then uh, in you and me, try to see what needs to be confessed and see what the holdup is. And also to try to get us, especially as Lutherans, to be a bit more comfortable with talking about the Christian life and frankly to be open to a world which needs the message of Christ and frankly which is coming back to us a little bit. It's, it's coming right back into our wheelhouse. This is a great time to be Lutheran. The world is moving. For so many years the world has moved away from us. The world is actually moving toward us. And so the whole point is to be ready. But the interesting shift over the past 50 years is that people don't want to talk anymore. They want to see. And seeing is as good a witness as talking. And that is behind kind of what we're trying to suggest to you. Lutherans are often long on talk and short on do. You know, they're often long on chatter and short on seeing. Okay, so, it's a, it's a, so at just the time when the world is coming to us, it exposes our greatest weakness. And it's extraordinarily important that we're ready at just this time to be able to deliver the stuff. That all sort of came to fruition then when you read, uh, you know, Galatians, you know, uh, or, or you read uh, some of these things where it says, you know, you foolish Galatians, or as James will say later, you wicked idiots. And you try to think, you try to imagine, you know, how long a pastor in, in America at this point would, would last if, if he said to his congregation, you foolish Wheatonites, you wicked idiots, you know. So how can that be in the scriptures? How can a pastor not say it? How can a pastor say it? How can parishioners hear it? Why would you ever say such a thing? What sort of circumstance would promote that? What does it mean to always be engaged by Christ? What does it mean to focus out? What does it mean to lose our idols? What does it mean to live the Christian life? And what does it mean to recognize that most Christians, most times throughout the world, have talked about that as the normal thing and even the joyful thing? And so a man like Wright can just write about love and obedience uh, as if they are the same thing, because, of course, they are the same thing. And sometimes, um, you know, that sounds just so foreign to you, but I just give you, you know, the president of the seminary on the front of your thing, quoting Luther. So, I mean, it just, you can't get it too much crisper than this, you know. This is th two lines in or three, identity Therefore, not duty. So identity, where do you get your identity? Baptism. Not duty, not finger-wagging. Identity. Be who you are. Identity. Not duty is the heart of our calling. And the understanding of the essence of Torah. And notice he uses the Hebrew phrase, which is cavalierly and often wrongly translated as law. Torah is a much better translation of gospel. If that's not gospel in the Old Testament today, I don't know what the gospel is. I saved you, and I loved you, and I'm taking you to a wonderful place, and I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to serve you every Sabbath day. 
and I'm going to show you a way that you can live together in harmony. If that's not the gospel, if that's not the gospel, I don't know what the gospel is. The law is God demands. The gospel is God meets his own demands in Christ. He's meeting his own demands. I will serve you, third commandment. I will be your God, first commandment. Okay? This identity does display a response. This identity is graciously given in the waters of baptism, but then, see, so baptism isn't the last word, it's the first word, but then it forms and shapes a habit. You get into the habit of doing good. Let us not do, grow weary in doing good. Galatians, I don't, I gotta look if it's 6.1 or 6.10, I can't remember if the zero's there, but do good, you know? It forms the habit of doing good. And it's not like, do some good, it's like, we're baptized, we do good. Where's some good that we can do? So church life together should be figuring out where you can do the most good. That's what the church does. It tries to figure out where you can do the most good. <clears throat> then it forms and shapes a habit of being that is in Christ. We've talked about that forever, being little Christ to each other. The habit of being is always imperfect. You know, you're going to screw it up and so am I. And that's the whole point of the sermon today. You have idols to confess, so do I. Confess them, get rid of them. If you keep them, you're dead. An idol means you've got some other commandment. To have, I to have idols is to lose the ten words. You've got another word, another way. Okay, the habit of being is always imperfect. I'm going to screw it up and so are you. That's why we go to confession. That's why we see each other face to face. That's why we bring two or three people along when we need to work hard at it. Okay? But everything is face to face. The habit of being is always imperfect and frequently hidden in our fallen state. Sometimes I'm unrecognizable as a Christian, and so are you. People looked at you, there's times when people could not believe you're a Christian. It's the same for me, okay? Sometimes, it, but it's nonetheless real, because it's our identity. So it's this Lutheran thing of you're a sinner and a saint the whole time. The whole point is to mash the sinner part down, that takes the law, and to let the re resurrected um, Holy Spirit part of you rise up. That's the gospel. In Luther's view, so here it is, as noted by Jaeger, he's a famous uh, good ELCA scholar who teaches at the, at the seminary in South Carolina. Such a pattern of life arises from and reflects the resurrection of our Lord. So you're little resurrected beings to each other. The new way of being present in the bodily world, the new way, you see there it is, the new way, in obedience to the second table of Moses. And man, nobody's pressing you. This is like, this is the way, if you want to go to Des Moines today, it's I-80. You know, and if you take another road, if you take 355, God bless you, but you're never going to get to Des Moines. The new way of being Christian is obedience to the second table of law, where obedience is a welcome word. Is for Luther a kind of beginning of bodily resurrection. Quote, Luther, this is the sort of work the Holy Spirit who sanctifies and awakens the body also to a new life of this sort until it is fulfilled in the life to come. So you live as little Christs as if this is heaven toward when we're all resurrected together in heaven, okay? For the man or woman who's in Christ, the new identity in the character of God now calls the new person to created bodily life, as in James, as in feed the poor, as in, you know, help people out when they lose their job, as in love the people you don't like, as in be noticeably Christian so that all these postmoderns who are looking for something authentic, non-hypocritical, 
loving, warm, mysterious, which is right in your wheelhouse. And if you're a Lutheran, this is like you couldn't live at a better time. You just wonder we're going to live long enough to get to see it. You know, if you're mine, you might not see it. But your kids, gee whiz, play your cards right. The world is coming right in. I mean, it's just coming right into your hand. Which is why the church needs to focus out, be welcoming, and why obedience is so important. It's not even now. It's like Luther says, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. God doesn't need your good works. You can't earn your way to heaven. God doesn't need your good works. He's got everything he needs. He doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does, and particularly neighbors who don't know anything about the church. If you can just be the one who, in your proper Ash Wednesday sort of way, goes about your good works and those become a witness, not for the trumpets of man, but not always in your closet where nobody's going to see it because when nobody ever sees it, then you're not, as Jesus says, a light shining on a hill or salt in the earth. You know, so it's this very delicate thing of figuring out how you're going to live. Now, partly what pastors are supposed to do is help you do that, and that often gives people, you know, cold shivers uh, talking about the pastor. And, um, you know, I've, there's a range of reasons for that. It can go everything from the pastor's personality to the mistakes he makes to the American notion of it's just me and my Jesus to we just don't like anybody to tell us what to do to we've got idols to, you know, it can be any of those things. It can be a range of those things, okay? But it nevertheless is what it is. So if you have a thing that's stapled, <clears throat> I am going to finish. If you have a thing that's, sta that's stapled, um, I'm going to quickly do a few things on page 34, and then I'm going to get through the rest of this. You know, what a self-pastoring is, is the most dangerous thing you can do. If you self-pastor, you should also um, drill your own teeth, drive your own cab, and take out your own appendix. Okay. We, there, there is none of us who is strong enough uh, to be its, our own pastor. You know, even the Pope, when the Pope is elected, they blow the smoke up. It's not all over. You know, he goes into a chapel called the Chapel of Tears, and weeping is probably the proper stance at that point. Uh, I would say in part because he doesn't have a pastor. Everybody else in the world has a pastor. You should be suspicious of a pastor that doesn't have a pastor. You should be suspicious of a parishioner that doesn't have a pastor, too. That's why the church has always had bishops. And, you know, some of the hierarchy has emerged above that, and you can argue about whether you like that or not. But there's always somebody watching over you. There's always somebody watching. If you self-pastor, it's a loser's game because the thing that we're best at is self-deception. We just can't see ourselves the way other people see us. And now I'm going to push harder, which is it's always an external, objective, ten words criteria for what is pleasing to God. We so often make our decisions based on how we feel. And Pastor Gaining did a very good last Friday with a little article where he said, irrationality, that is to privilege anything but redeemed reason, always breeds suspicion, and suspicion always breaks community. Very interesting little two or three page article about that. Um, boy, that's just, the, that's just the way it is. Because if, you, if it's always internal, if it's always just how I feel or it's how much you've been victimized or it's about what you know, and it never comes out, if you can't hang it in the air as an objective external thing, then you can never, ever live in community. You're just a bunch of individuals running around. 
So it's extraordinarily important that people have an external thing. That's why Matthew 18 says you go with people face to face. That's why um, 1 Timothy 5 says um, don't even entertain a charge against a pastor without two or three witnesses. Because when people are mad at God, it's very easy to be mad at the pastor. It doesn't mean pastors are perfect. It means that pastors, but it means that they're in a ticklish situation. Um, and anything else is antichrist. It breaks the community. I mean, Christ was very clever the way he did all this. So, and, and sometimes, you know, the appearance isn't always, you know, what you might, might think. If you've read G.K. Chesterton, any of the Father Brown mysteries, you know, have you read any of those? The guy's a doof, okay? But he solves everything in town. How does he do that? Because he sits and hears confession all day long. And after you hear confession for 10, 20 years, you kind of figure out how people tick. So here's this guy who's just a bumbling doofus, right? But he's the guy who figures out, you know, who's doing the bad stuff. Because that's what he does. He's been exposed to bad stuff all day long. So um, I just say, you know, if don't self-pastor unless you drill your own teeth and take out your own appendix and give yourself your own chemotherapy. And, you know, unless you do all that, I, why you would self-pastor is just beyond me. Um, I don't self-pastor, and you shouldn't either. I don't recommend it. Because nobody's that good. I'm at the bottom of the page here. You know, no, none of us are that good. Okay? It's just like... Uh, I had my annual physical this week for my doctor. I'm a great doctor, but, you know, I love my doctor because he, 50 minutes, we talk about the world and Jesus and mission trips, and he's a strong Christian guy, and he doesn't go here. I mean, he's not a Lutheran, but he's a fantastic guy. It's always so interesting, you know, it's gotten to him, too. I mean, it's, I don't mean gotten to him. It's come to his office, too, where people come in and say, you know, Ugh, I have high blood pressure and a goiter and a brain tumor. Can you fix me right up? He's like, I assure you, you don't have any of those things. But of course, that people have been to Google, so why go to medical school? <clears throat> I just watch House, by the way. Uh, you can either, if you watch House, you can self-doctor. That's the one little. And if you watch that EWTN, is that the Catholic channel? Then you can self No, never mind. Okay. All right. So, um, all right, so I'm turning the page now. I'm on page 35. So um, finally, you know, it's a pastor's task to deliver this. And you, you may not like it. You may not like it. I mean, they didn't like it when Jesus cleaned the temple today. That was a very painful experience. But pain is not an indicator of right and wrong. One of the things I've realized over the past month is that this is just a very simple thing of saying what's right and what's wrong. Not according to what you think, not according to what I think, not according to what the world thinks. This is a very, kind of what I've realized over the course of reading Galatians and James is this whole exercise of being in the church, it's a very simple thing of naming things. That's right, that's wrong. And I'm, I'm stunned by how often we don't have data and that we don't use our data objectively. We don't bring the 10 words and say, that's right and that's wrong. Because you're free within all the things that are right, you're free to do anything you want. People can do all different things. You can be... Democrat or Republican, you can live in France or move to Tahiti. Well, that's French, actually, so you might want to go far. Madagascar, you know, they just had a revolution. I don't know, pick a nice place. Okay, so, you know, you can do what you want uh, within anything that you're, and the world is an open place, but you can't do anything that's evil. Those, those things are not uh, open to you. Now, I put a couple of things in here, and these are precisely the passages that everybody says, you remember at an ordination or an installation of a pastor, uh, th there's always a pastor from outside who comes in and says, uh, do you really know what you're doing here? And then everybody nods along so they can get downstairs and eat potato salad. But I just, I just put some of the things in here. I, I don't think you realize that the same 
things that make you nervous about your pastor now, or maybe when a pastor preaches the way Galatians or James are being, you know, the way James is preaching or Paul is preaching. I don't know if you realize that's the same thing you agreed to at an installation or ordination. I, so I put a couple of things in that makes people very, very nervous, you know. So Jesus says, for example, the one who hears you, hears me. So if you hear your pastor, you hear Jesus. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. So if you reject your pastor, you, you reject Jesus. Now, let your heart beat rate go back down, because we're going to talk about that in just a moment. The one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Okay? I mean, there it is with the text. We never read it. Pastors almost always avoid it because it, does, it seems self-serving and it makes everybody cranky and blah, blah. But just there it is. I mean, that's Jesus talking. Or this is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries. Now, here it comes back. Moreover, stewards are to be found trustworthy. So we're responsible. Someday we'll all answer for what we do. But I have a double measure. I have to answer for everything I do individually, and then also as pastor, I have to answer for every person I ever communed, baptized, found, lost, um, praying for a pleasant day. Uh, or look at the next one, 2 Corinthians 4. Now, here's a pastor's work. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ. So he's like, this is what you do. Who is the judge of the living and the dead? Man, Matthew 26, there it is both ways. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. That means, you know, you know what this means. It means there's going to be times when it's difficult and times when it's not so difficult. But you got to say things whether people want to hear it or they don't want to hear it. Now get this, and this is what most people don't think about their pastor. Re reprove, which means you're wrong. Rebuke means you're really wrong. Exhort, which means get going, do some good works. Now, with complete patience and teaching, well, prompt, Okay. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching and have itching ears, and they'll get for themselves different theological opinions off Google and teachers therein on YouTube to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into mist. Now, you notice how there is an objective truth, which is another thing. You know, I know there's broadcast, and I know there's reception. I know there's perception, and I know there's reality. But there is a reality that is Christ, that is truth, that is external. And we have to live with that. We have to figure that out as pastors. It's really, really important for us to get to that. And not to presume the best about your parishioners is to break the first and fourth commandment. So it's really important for pastors always to say, these are the people the Lord has given me, and, and it's important for me to uh, love them and care for them and, and bless them. Um, so, so the first bit is, you know, the pastor always has to make sure that he speaks clearly. The other part is, um, a parishioner's task is to receive that humbly and trustingly and obediently and with a Berean eye. Now here's the one that never gets read and just, you know, if it went to a Missouri Synod vote would be excised out of the scriptures, you know. Obey your leaders and submit to them. I'm like, I know, you know, I once had a bride who, <laughs> I think I told you this, I once had a bride who, was worried about submitting, the, obeying the vows. And um, we sort of worked through it. And you know, I didn't say I wouldn't do it if she didn't say it, and she didn't press it too hard. But half an hour before the wedding, she sent me a written note. I will not say obey. Send it by messenger, by courier, <laughs> by bridesmaid. Here, this is for you. 
So now I have to decide what to do because here's the thing. I mean, what am I going to do? I can say, well, okay, you're outside the liturgy then and outside the scripture, so I guess no wedding. And then, you know, the elders are at my house that night wondering why I'm such a bad pastor. Uh, or I could not say it, but then I don't say what scripture says, then I'm a bad pastor. So you see, you see how quickly things get goobered up when we don't just do what the Lord tells us to do. Well, part of it is, apparently in the course of that, she never kind of figured out what obey is. But in this case, just so you know, obey, the word for obey here, it's, a, it's an interesting form of a word. The word initially means uh, to persuade. And then in the passive form, it means to be persuaded by. Let yourself be persuaded by. Let this happen to you. So really, this means something like, the best translation of this is something like, see, um, give your pastor the benefit of the doubt. That's what it means. Just, just presume the best. Give him the benefit of the doubt. See, it doesn't have this sense of sort of, you know, wax my car because somebody waxed my car kind of thing. You know, it's not, you know. It's like presume your pastor, presume your pastor that he, because, and it presumes, of course, all the other things that have been said uh, in First Timothy about, you know, don't lay hands on hastily, or if you do that hastily, then you get a bad pastor who hasn't studied a long time, and if you do that, you're going to get all kinds of bad data and blah, blah. So this means something like, give your pastor the benefit of the doubt, presume the best in him, okay? And then submit is actually the word for walk along behind which is just what Jesus says, follow me. So what it means is your default is you sort of listen to your pastor, you presume the best, and you sort of presume that he knows what he's doing and you just sort of follow. That's, that's what the text says. I didn't make it up. I mean, there it is, the text, you know. Why? Because they keep watch over your souls and they have to give an account. Some they have to answer for your sins as well as mine. You know, I have to answer for you, which is, uh, you know, it's a stretch for me just to have to answer for my kids. You know, to have to answer for all of you, too, is going to be, I don't know. Do people wait in line a long time when they prepare? I don't know. It's going to be very, very interesting. Let them do this with, um, with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, um, you know, that doesn't mean you're supposed to make me happy. Happiness and joy are two different things. Joy in the scriptures, like in Psalm 1, blessed is the man, means faithfulness. This Bible is not so good because it translates it, Psalm 1, happy is the man which doesn't actually meet, make any sense because what makes me happy is not always a thing that blesses me, okay? But I give you the next thing, too, which is your responsibility, and this is extraordinarily important for you. These Jews were, no, were, were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. So they, they gave Paul the benefit of the doubt, and they were happy to have him go. This is Paul preaching there in Berea. He comes to him on a missionary thing examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You see what that does? So you have a scripture, and you sort of test out your pastors and what they say by the external, objective word of scripture. So it's not your feelings or my feelings, your happiness or my feelings, happiness, your idols or my idols. This is extraordinarily important. This is how churches work really well. Um, and it's important to show the data from the text. It's important in a church to have a public rubric. It's important to have a public grid so we know what we're doing. I'm going to push so hard that I finish. Um, I know it's five minutes till. So it is in then not in the realm of emotion, but in the realm of sanctified reason and sanctified motion, redeemed reason, your baptized brain, sort out um, what's, what's going on. I'm just going to give you the last thing, which is under 10. I just wanted you to see the first line of that thing by Capon. 
playing it safe is not divine. And one of the things you notice in, um, it's been a tremendous stress for so many of you. I understand that uh, with the economy and jobs and friends and long hours. And, um, you know, I realize, uh, you know, how hard it has been for so many people. I mean, we have people for the first time since I've been here who don't have food. Um, you know, we just, that's a different, I understand that we are in a very different world. And I realize the stress is very high. I, I understand that. I'll also say to you, though, um, what I said, the very first thing I said to you, which is stress reveals character. It builds character, but it also reveals character. And um, it's very important at times of stress to really hold the external rubric. We tend to, when we're stressed, we tend to revert to our natural impulses. But we know as Christians our natural impulses are often selfish or self-interested or um, cloudy. You know, if on a good day we're very good at self-deception, on a bad day, boy, oh boy. So that's why it's so important to have community, to have an objective rubric, to see people face to face, to say, this doesn't seem right or this seems really good and to rejoice in the good things and to give each other the benefit of the doubt. It's horribly important to do that you know, all the time, but especially in times of stress. Um, last thing, which is, you know, we had this shortfall at the end of the year, and, you know, we sort of stood in front of you and said, you know, we're losing $1,000 a day, and there's been an incredible amount of very good work done by the leaders in the congregation. But then there's always this interplay of how, how people in the congregation and pastors work together, and the tension is sometimes heightened by these texts about, you know, how does the pastor fit into this and, you know, obey your leaders and submit to them, and, read in a different way and maybe um, when it pinches it seems you know can seem heavy-handed and when it's misapplied it certainly can be heavy-handed and it can cut back the other way too um, and uh, you know over the course of this time um, I got a letter I got an email from a very well-meaning person in the congregation who sort of said this is outlist to me what should we do and so I wrote back you know I write five of these a day to people who write me and I, I tried to say this is how the world works in a church, okay? So that's on the back of this page, and I'll just close up with this. Someday you can read Martin Luther about doing good works. I hope you're over the notion that doing a good work is trying to earn your way to heaven. Uh, you're baptized, so. All right, so here's how it works. And, I, you know, this is open, of course, to engagement and discussion, but this is how it works, generally. Um, a little preliminary chatter. And then the question is, the question sort of posed to me was, how do pastors and lay people work together? What's a congregation supposed to look like? What do you do with he who hears you, hears me, and obey? And, you know, who's in, how, how does this move around, blah, blah. Okay. First, thanks for trusting us. It, one, I should say it was a very gentle opening to the letter, which just says, I know you've got my best interests at heart, which is Hebrews, see? I know that, I know that you're, you know, I know you have my best interests at heart which is a very easy way to open a congregation. If you believe that about me and I believe it about you, things go so much easier. So thanks for trusting us. That's the way of Jesus. I'll cover this in Bible study sometime, so today's the day. But the point is this. The pastor stands in the place of Jesus. He who hears you hears me, right? And when he speaks for Jesus, this is critically important, when he speaks for Jesus, folks are to listen and obey. It's just that simple. If I say what Jesus says, you know, just push me out of the way and listen to Jesus. Um, it's not true completely that pastors are interchangeable parts. I once was writing, you know, 15 years ago, I wrote a, an article, I gave a lecture on marriage where <coughs> I had said <laughs> in my 
in, the, in, the, in there. I'd said in this article, I was going to say in this lecture, theoretically, any Christian could marry another Christian and, and, it, and marriage should be fine. And I took it to my confessor and had him read it. And, you know, he pointed out a few things. And then at that particular point, he was silent a bit. Um, I think he must have been thinking, you know, what my wife might say when she read that. And then, uh, and then theoretically, of course, it's true. But, of course, I don't live in a theoretical world, nor do you. Um, he pointed me a place in C.S. Lewis can't remember if it's in Tulia Faces or someplace. Anyway, he pointed me to a place where it said, in all the world, there really is one person, one right person for you to marry in all the world. And that person will be of greatest joy to you. So it is, it is um, you know, theoretically, you could have any pastor, and pastors are interchangeable parts, but in another way, there are pastors who are perfect fits, and there are pastors who aren't perfect fits. And, um, you know, you try to try to fit it together as best you can. So, um, when he speaks for Jesus, folks are to listen and obey. That shows humility on the part of parishioners. And try not to hear humility as, hear it as a virtue. Humility is a virtue. It's not, it's not to be oppressed. It's not an oppressive word. Gosh, we could all use it's the opposite of pride, which is self. Okay? The opposite of that is when people don't trust us, suggest us we don't work harder to our best, don't have the best interests of the congregation at heart or self-serving, or something else. Just name that. That's, that's sin. Second, however, remember that we're trained in theology and nothing else. It's really important for you to understand this about your pastors. That means that while we're pretty sharp and work hard at what's before us, we are not an expert like you. This particular person has some, some critical skills for the conversation. So it's important for us to be listened to but also important for us to give way when we're not the experts. That shows humility on our part. You can kind of see how this is shaken out, right? So every, this is the very first thing I ever said to you when I came here, which is everybody's skills need to be drawn into orbit around Christ. And who's ever the best at doing it should do it. Um, and amateurs step back. You know, whatever you do, do that well. Now, I don't mean that completely. I mean, if you, you know, how to, know how to paint next door and don't know how to blow out walls, come paint. You know, but the point is, um, when you meet, you bring your best and you, and you make use of the best in the congregation. The intersection of these two, third is the intersection of these two, theology and strategy. Again, we're here all day long, so we know most about the place, and we're pretty good at getting the feel of the congregation and predicting how the dominoes will fall. This isn't a congregation of 200 people at a white clapboard church. It's very difficult for people outside you know, to come in with a staff of 40 or 50 people and all the push and pull of a couple thousand lives and try to figure it out part-time is impossible. be like me coming to your business and pulling up to a desk and starting to say, hey, sell some more of those and stop the manufacturing over there. And have you thought about opening a branch in China? You know, I mean, it just is like, it's just not that helpful to you, you know. So we need to be listened to at this intersection. We need to be listened to. But here we also need to listen because guys like you have come in like consultants. And you know how consultants work. You got good skills and fresh eyes. That can be very helpful. So you, you kind of see how this works, this back and forth? I mean, this is how, in real time, how things should work. That gives a little more nuance to the whole discussion and keeps parishioners from doing whatever a pastor says robotically. So there's a difference between you giving me the benefit of the doubt and doing whatever I say robotically, like I do with my GPS. Instead, you know, your proper stance is to follow us wholly when we speak for Jesus. He who hears you hears me. 
listen to us when we speak strategically, and watch us follow you whenever you turn out to be an expert with a better idea. Got it? That's how the world works in the church. And, you know, we always struggle with, uh, you know, how that's going to play out and, um, you know, how that's going to work. But, you know, that's, that's where you, you try to go. Um, and actually that, that kind of interchange, given, given proper time, I think, and, and care, um, you know, probably, probably works out for the best. All right, uh, quick question about anything? I know I'm over a little bit. Um, all right. I tell you what, uh, do you know if you're going Galatians or James way next week? It's Galatians. Do you know if you're going Galatians or James? You should be reading, go ahead and read in James 2 and go ahead and read in Galatians 2. Uh, we're only in about, we're, we're only, or was it all the way to 3? Yeah, read Galatians 3 and James 2. Read Galatians 3 and James 2 and then come back to live another day, okay? All right, love you, see you, bye. Remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.